This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Steve Falconer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Germ, great to be here. Buckle up, people. This could get ugly. <laughs> How's the information war treating you? Uh, it's going, you know, I'm not in it. I've been working on a film. I'm about two months overdue. So all this stuff's going on in the real world and I'm clueless. Everybody, I go on Facebook and everyone's like, did you see this and that and that? I'm like, I haven't seen anything. So I'm having a good old time, but I'm sure like the world's falling apart around us like apocalypse crap, you know, but I don't care. How about you? How's it going down there? Roaming blackouts, he said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of part of living in Africa. Uh, we have a lot of chaos, but there is beauty in it as well. Mm, yeah. And I think a lot of if your attention is focused on the news, even alternative news, you know, it may, whether you're watching mainstream or alternative, it's just like, what's fucked up today? What's terrible today? What's terrible? And you're like, well, if you weren't watching that, your day is probably pretty great if you went down to the beach. and you know, <laughs> So uh, I think a lot of it's in your head, even if the world's falling apart is your world really falling apart right now and i think i try to live like that mine's okay i'm having a good time i saw a tweet i think today or yesterday uh it's a headline saying something along the lines of experts baffled by why COVID didn't affect africa and i'm thinking <laughs> it's, i'm thinking it's simply because they don't have tv it's probably that and they already had white guys injecting them with killer shit for 30 years, so they know don't take the vaccines. <laughs> the Africans are like, don't stick that in you, you know. <laughs> I saw a great, uh, somebody did one of those Hitler, you know, the, the Hitler movie where everyone voices over. And he's like, in fear, they won't take the vaccines. And Hitler's freaking out. And he's like, we never should have put Bill Gates in the front. His wife said the Africans got to get it first. That should have been the first clue. <laughs> <laughs> when two people say we got to kill all the black africans and americans say uh, they get it first you're like that <laughs> remember back in the oh, 80s yeah. where where they, where they tried to say well there's a virus that doesn't like uh gay men in nightclubs in america and uh, poor black people <laughs> in africa yeah. and the red cross was they they were making you sick with the smallpox vaccines they had cancer cells from sheep and cows then you took the pcr test we, we should talk about pcr because mm. that's going to be relevant with uh, i made some notes for tonight's talk and i have mm. two things that you want to that i'd love to talk about one if i'm going the right way there we go there uh, we go deep metagenomic sequencing and two is a, a conference that happened in 2006 with the, uh, the heads of all genomic professors and experts in the world and they found out that genomes are bullshit they're not static they change every millisecond of the day compared to what's going on around them and therefore we've got a can of worms because it's not just these viruses and and these pcr tests you're talking about paternity tests you're talking about criminals getting out of jail now that we went back and took a DNA test. Everything we believe about genomics was wrong. 
and they didn't tell the public because they were getting new grants for their new um, types of different genomic sequences. So they found out that the Human Genome Project, your relatives you send in, I want to know who I'm related to, you're 22% Scottish, bullshit, all of it. And they didn't tell the public because they were trying to get into a new kind of genomics and get their research grants. So we need to talk about that. Everything we know about genetics is wrong. Germ theory is dead. Germ theory has been dead for a long time, but there's a group of people who are making trillions of dollars pretending that it isn't dead. So they keep, just like everyone sees, you know, they're on TV saying, now there's a World Cup going on in uh, Qatar and now there's a camel virus. And you're like, get the, get the hell out of here, camel virus. No one's even around a camel. There's not a camel near Qatar like they're out in the desert. They just keep saying that this is happening, this is happening, and everyone else has been saying, no, it's not happening. And they don't care that it's dead. They just care that the average person doesn't hear that information. Just like the genomics, it doesn't matter if the genomes are, are BS, as long as the average person still believes what we were all taught about genomes. And that's what's going on with the germ theory. Now, I, like I wrote to you off camera, you said you had a Dr. Peter McCullough. You said he's like a really cool guy. And I totally agree. He's probably like awesome and cool. What my problem is, um, because when we get into deep, uh, deep metagenomic sequencing, if we don't nip this in the bud right now, they don't care that we've figured out that their test tubes and their Petri dish experiments and all that are crap because they're going to a new thing right now which is not going to use test tubes and petri dishes and all that anymore. And this is what's really dangerous is we're saying your old way didn't prove there are viruses and we've disproved it your old way. What they're doing is saying, well, it's now a given that there are viruses, that our old way did prove it, right? And we're saying, no, you didn't. They're saying, yes, we did. Now what they're doing is saying, we're not even going to do these cell cultures anymore. We're going to say... Uh, they've been saying, the mainstream has been saying for, you know, 50 years, we don't know what causes the common cold, right? Was, we don't know what the cause of the cold is. Now what they're going to do is take a person with the common cold, they're going to take their boogers, and they're going to take the sequences in their boogers and make a common cold virus just out of thin air like they've been doing, but they won't have to prove there is a common cold virus, because it's a given there are viruses. So they'll just take that, make a genetic sequence out of all the parts, and then make a cold vaccine. A person with diarrhea, they're gonna say diarrhea is a diarrhea virus. They'll take the poo out of someone with diarrhea, rearrange all the genetic bits, make a computer, make the diarrhea virus sequence. Now you've got a diarrhea vaccine. They could take a heartbreak. Oh, heartbreak turns out it's contagious. Take a heartbroken person, take their spit, and make a heartbroken genetic, you see? And they're saying there's going to be 500 new vaccines. 500 new vaccines are saying in five years. So this is the problem we're having is we're saying you didn't establish your old way that there is a virus. And they're saying, we're not even going to use the old way. We're going to use the new way that just assumes there is and use this new way of making sequences. This is, this is why there's the fight 
between the no virus camp and the Peter McCullough's and, you know, J, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Our camp is saying because they're going to pull this crap, it's vital right now that we prove there isn't the virus because the new technology just assumes there is. And once they go to that technology, we, we can't get this back. All right, here's the, here's the basics of it. <clears throat> Louis Pasteur made up this theory that uh, it, they used to think bacteria caused disease because when you died of scarlet fever or any of these diseases in the corpse, they would find the bacteria in the lungs, for instance, if you died of pneumonia or um, scarlet fever or anything like that. Um, they assumed that because the bacteria were in the tissue that they killed you. That's what they thought. Like the bacteria is the reason you died. But the weird thing is they used to find the bacteria in the lungs of someone who didn't die of scarlet fever. They were sometimes there. Or if you died of scarlet fever, you didn't have those kind of bacteria in there. So if they are the cause of death, they have to always be there or never be there if they're not, right? But that didn't happen. Then Pasteur said, well, no, 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 it's not these bacteria. It's these particles called viruses. And you can breathe them in, spit them out, and they go around and kill everyone. Now, the mic they didn't have the micro uh, microscope technology to see viruses. So this was purely fictional. And Pasteur admitted in his diary what he was doing because he said he had antidotes for these viruses. <laughs> so he was going around to these county fairs and the farmers would bring their animals. And then he would inject poisons into some of the animals. And then he would inject water with salt, saline solution into the others. And he would say, I've given all of them my virus, this virus. But the saline solution water I injected into this animal was the, the vaccine, the antidote. And then the, the ones he was injecting with poison would die because he was filling a third of these animals and dogs' brains with a poisonous fluid. And he'd go, oh, they died because <laughs> they had the virus. So the problem is everyone thought, okay, that's totally cool. That's cool. But we, we couldn't see a virus because they're like uh, nothing. They're 150 nanometers. They're like 0. 0.00555 of a millimeter. So everyone just assumed, yeah, okay, that's cool. Well, later we got electron microscopes. So the scientists have all been taught this germ theory. They were really excited because they were like, now we can see viruses. We can see that small. The problem is huh, they couldn't see them. They never, to this day, they have never found a virus inside of a person, an animal, nature, anything, right from the lung fluid or from the nature or the animal, from the blood, the sputum, they've never seen one. But they were sure that there was one because they were just taught in school that pasture was correct, right? So the first thing you should do is go back to your premise and say, was pasture correct? That's real science. Was he right? But they, they're just taught that he was right. So they're looking for these particles and can't find them. So later they find a technique where they take your boogers, your sputum or a sample, 
and they put them in a cell culture on these Vero monkey kidney tissue cells. Now, Dr. Tom Cowan has just found three new papers none of us have seen that showed that these monkey kidney tissues, for some reason, break down themselves anyway, no matter what you do to them, which is why they use them. So they say, well, th these particles are too small in your body to see them. We, we keep asking them, if I'm sick, why can't you take my boogers and look under an electron microscope and see these viruses, right? Because your electron microscope can clearly see a virus particle because you're showing us them after your cell culture, right? So it's not that they're too small to see because how do you see them there, but you can't see them here. And they say, well, there aren't enough of them. So they put your boogers in with these monkey kidney tissue cells, which break down anyway on their own. Then they add kidney nephrotoxins and it's a monkey kidney tissue cell. So genomycin, amphotericin, phenol red, trypsin, they add chemicals that break down kidney tissue into tiny, tiny millions of little particles, viruses. Then they add first fetal bovine calf serum, which they use for stem cell research. It's the blood of a cow fetus. So they abort a cow fetus, but their blood has stem cells. So that helps the culture grow. They say, well, this is how we grow the tissue in the culture so it doesn't die. But then they starve that tissue by reducing the amount of fetal calf serum they put. So they put a lot of nutrients in so the culture is healthy and grows. Then they starve it, and then they poison it with the phenol red, genomycin, amphotericin, the antibiotics. Then they wait like four or five days, and the cells in the culture break down into millions of little tiny particles with little spikes around them. And they go, aha, there was a virus in there because now we can see it under the electron microscope. But that's not even where the joke ends, because to even see something under an electron microscope, you have to, it's not alive. So something happening in your body, in a living organism, is not the same as it will behave anyway when you put it in a Petri dish that's not alive. You have no blood circulation, no oxygen, no iron, no minerals, no anything. So what's happening in, it's like putting your heart in a Petri dish and going, hey, it's not beating anymore. Well, <laughs> of course, it has to be in the body. Then they stain this thing with uh, all kinds of chemicals, lead and formaldehyde. Um, they heat it up really hot, then freeze it. They chop it into a million pieces. They put your uranium on there. They do all this crap so that they can bombard it with 300 degree electron microscope beeps. And then what they're looking at under the microscope isn't the particle, it's the metal stain they put on and the electron beams bounce off. So they do all this and then they see these little particles broken off of the tissue and they go, there's the virus, we can see it now. And you say, well, yeah, you can see it at that magnification, but why couldn't you see it in my boogers? Like, if my lungs are a cell culture, if you're telling me that these viruses are teeming and multiplying in my lungs and then multiplying them all over, why can't you see them? And it's because they're making the virus. Cytopathic effect means a cell dies and then breaks into a million pieces. They're saying the virus causes the cytopathic effect 
but they have never seen a virus particle or cytopathic effect until they mix your boogers with kidney tissue, chemicals, and do all I just explained to break it down into a million pieces. In other words, if I stabbed you in the arm right now, Jerm, and then I shot you 50 times with a gun and said, oh, he's dead, that, but there is a stab wound on his arm. That proves he died from the knife. <laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> you can't so use it's, a procedure. It's, it's backwards. It's circular reason. You can't use a procedure that causes cytopathic effect to prove that a, a theoretical thing in the tissue caused, you know, caused it. You can't say we think there was a virus in your boogers and that's what killed this cell culture when the procedure you used <laughs> kills a cell culture the exact same way and then you blame it on that it's like blaming the stab wound for 50 bullet shots that's what they're doing and then they've never taken that out of that petri dish put it into an animal or in a human being or anything and made them sick with the with the same symptoms that this virus allegedly causes that's even the worst part about it and they've never done experiment no experiment in history has had a sick person cough uh, inject their boogers mucus into a healthy person and make them sick with what you claim it causes so the whole thing is like a theoretical thing and they've never done this but they're not going to do this. Now they're going to just assume that's true and they're going to just start making up viruses for everything. But Steve, if you do a quick internet search, you'll find lots of results that say viruses have been isolated. For example, SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated. You'll It'll be your first pile of results. Mm. Yeah. And the thing is, so every time you read one of these viral papers, and I've read 50 of them, and my colleagues, Dr. Kaufman, they've read hundreds of them. What they say it does in the conclusion is not what the methodology section says they did. That's the problem. And here's a good one, like if you're listening. If I say to you, Germ, you've got all your clothes in the washing machine right now, right? And I say to you, isolate your socks i want you to isolate your socks from all the clothes in the washing machine and put them in the dryer now if i told you to do that isolate your socks in the dryer what would you do you would take only the socks out right and put them in the dryer and leave everything else right yeah because that's isolation well is that your definition of isolation well yeah yes i, I need to find that one thing just the socks right you wouldn't mm. put the dress or the underwear or your yep. wife's right yeah but virologists what they do is they take some jeans the socks a few pairs of underwear a handkerchief <laughs> they take some a bunch of stuff out of the washer put that in the dryer and leave some of the other stuff and they go well that's isolation because technically the socks are still in the dryer with the jeans and underwear and all that and you're like yeah but if if you stepped in dog shit with your socks and we're trying to see if that's the problem here we don't want your jeans and shirt and all the other. We want the socks because your jeans and your handkerchief didn't step in dog shit. And the virologists, their definition of isolation is not what any normal human being on Earth's definition is. So they're saying, well, yeah, it's in there, but it's also in there with everything else. And then, and then we're saying, then by the way, once you put it all in there, 
you throw a whole bunch of other stuff in the dryer that wasn't even in the wash load. Like, you know, the wash load was just your clothes or your spit or boogers or sputum. Now they throw your wife's clothes in, your neighbor's clothes in, the upstairs neighbor's clothes in. They throw last night's dinner in there. They throw your garbage bag in there, right? They chuck it all in a dryer and they go, oh my God, this thing's toxic. And you're like, yeah, but that doesn't prove the socks are toxic. You just threw a bunch of crap in there and said, well, the socks are technically in there. That's what they're doing. And the isolate, my thing is, forget about all this isolation crap because first of all every experiment that's ever been done taking a sick person like you you've got the flu or something real bad you and i go face to face you spit in my face you cough we talk close i inject your boogers into my arms i spray them up my nose no one has ever gotten sick in the history of the world from that nobody ever and then let's say you took this dryer with all the stuff in it in the socks. They've never taken those particles out that they claim are viruses and put them into a healthy being or animal and made them sick with the disease they claim it causes. They have taken the whole rotten tissue Petri dish, which is poisonous, rotten, dying flesh and injected them into animals. And it has made the animals sick, but not with what they claim the, the thing is. Like they tried it with one of the experiments with uh, SARS-CoV-2. They, they injected the whole rotted Petri, Petri dish with the, the boogers, the monkey kidney, all the antibiotics, all the poisons, toxins into some mice. And they had bristled fur. <laughs> now, do you remember one of the side effects of COVID being bristled fur? <laughs> and some, some of them had weight loss, right? No, you're supposed to get pneumonia, fever, uh, you know, stuff like. So it's the poisons in the dish that did it. So I don't care whether they isolate or not. You have to make someone sick in the real world or you have to inject that particle, even you claim as the virus, into something and make it sick with the symptoms, right? Like HIV. If you say that AIDS virus is real, you have to inject that AIDS virus from that Petri dish into an animal and give it AIDS, right? And then they say, oh, well, some people are asymptomatic. You're like, what? That means you... I have the virus and these viruses allegedly blow up my cells and kill all my cells. And that, but you can have the same virus and you, nothing happens to you. So does this virus cause illness or not? How come it does in me and not you, right? You can't be asymptomatic. Otherwise the virus doesn't cause the disease, even if it was a contributing factor. So that's another scam they pull because they can't isolate and prove it. You're just like, well, how come how come germ tested positive for COVID and Steve didn't? And they're like, because germs asymptomatic. <laughs> you're like, well, every every day they tell us, and I don't know how they would even count this. I think this is bullshit. But we have a thing called apoptosis, where they say naturally. 50 to 70 billion of our cells every day just die because it's time to die and they reproduce 50 to 70 billion and that just happens every single day and you have to ask well 
are you sick with flu symptoms or COVID symptoms every day from 70 billion cells dying? No. But then they tell you, you get this virus in there that kills a fraction of that in your lung cells, and suddenly you're deathly ill with COVID. And you're like, well, if the thing is, this, it, it, they're not saying the virus makes you sick. They're saying it killing your cells makes you sick, right? They're not saying having a COVID alleged virus in your body is causing the fever, sweating, runny nose. They're saying it exploding your cells is causing that. And you're like, well, okay, but you're also saying 70 billion of my cells are self-exploding on their own for no reason every day. And that's not causing fever running out. You see what I'm saying? So it's mm -hmm. like, well, which is it? You cannot have your cake and eat it too. And this whole pseudoscience is based around this. Every time they say this, the facts contradict. You know what I'm saying? It's ludicrous. How do you explain the Spanish flu and polio and all the other big viral outbreaks? Well, for starters, they want polio. Uh, they were using um, they were spraying crops for years with lead arsenic, like an arsenic type of thing. Um, later, they went to DDT. Now, polio did go away. Uh, 19, uh, I put this in my film. I think it was 19, could have been 48, but don't quote me. Um, polio went away for six months the year they stopped spraying the crops with the old poison and then six months later it came back when they introduced DDT and all the polio virology studies they did they were finding kids in farm towns <laughs> that were being airplane sprayed with DDT or the lead arsenic before um, living on the outskirts of town now, now they'd have these outbreaks in these towns but not all the kids would get it. Some would get polio-like symptoms, right? There wasn't these giant outbreaks. So what what these were were like they were mass poisoning is basically what they were. Spanish flu, same thing. They were giving the soldiers 18 to 20 different vaccination injections of these new vaccines they were trying. Then they were trying to make new ones to make up for the diseases they were causing. Then the world war ended, so they had they had a surplus of vaccines. The soldiers were coming home totally sick. They were sick. So they told the public that they were contagious, and you need to take these 15 or 16 vaccines or you'll catch it. And it was causing all kinds of weird stuff. Black death, yeah, it was causing ridiculously uh, disgust. And you can read about this in Eleanor McBean's book, The Poison Needle. So, and it wasn't an outbreak. You can actually see, if you look on the U.S. maps, the outbreaks were all around the American military bases first. There, there wasn't this massive Spanish flu outbreak. And I very much question the numbers. What, what did you hear? 50 million? 60 million? Something along those lines. Yes. Have you ever seen proof of that number? No. Me neither. And I've looked real hard. Um, there, there were a lot of deaths, but I cannot find that anything of that magnitude actually happened. I'm not saying it wasn't that magnitude. I'm just saying, can somebody show me? But these were vaccinations. There were These are mass poisoning events. It was the first mass vaccination in history where everyone had to take like 
16 to 20. Imagine if they told you you had to take 20 COVID boosters in, in four months. You know what I mean? They were doing them. They were doing them like four in four weeks. This is crazy. You know, we Sheesh. get our childhood vaccine, right? And then they're like, oh, you need a booster in what, 10, 20 years? <laughs> Just imagine them cranking 20 of these things in you in a month, you know, and wondering why everyone was dying. And all throughout history, you'll see a poisoning event. Then you'll see a natural decline in the disease blamed on the blamed on the 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 germ or the bacteria or the virus, and then as soon as they stop using this poison, and then they come out with the vaccine immediately after, and then you see a rapid decline after, and they go, "Oh, the vaccine did it," and you're like, "Yeah, but the bar hmm. graph was already going down, like you know," and and then you eradicated the poison here and then here you introduced the vaccine and gave that credit. <laughs> they do this all the time. Uh, Norman uh, is asking about, well, what about chickenpox parties? Yeah. And that's a great, actually my new film is all about chickenpox, mumps, measles, and it'll be out in hopefully three, four days. What about, 12 kids go to a chicken pox party and only four of them get the chicken pox within a week or two after. How, how do you explain the other eight who didn't? I guess the, the response is, well, immune system or something to that effect. Yeah. Or maybe they weren't close enough to the virus or this and that and the other. Um, mm. I, this could be a three hour show in its own. And my new movie is two and a half hours talking about this, but Chicken pox are not a contagious virus. They are a combination of a lot of things. Um, one of them's um, a mineral deficiency. Another one is a trauma from separation when you go to school. But the, these aren't all like that is the cause, that is the cause. Some of it's pheromones, some of it's uh, bioresonant triggers. There's a lot of suspects for the cause of this. But whether you break out with physical pox or not, my son never did. For instance, I put my son um, on Schussler uh, mineral tissue salts because of another problem he had when he was a real young kid. So I had him taking a biochemical cell salts every day, like candy almost. So when it came time for his chicken pox, we, he got like three little bumps on his side of his head. He got two on his chest and a couple on his elbow. So we took him into our doctor and our, our practice had this old guy, Klaus, who was like about to retire. I think he was 68, 70 and a young lady. So we got the old guy who had been practicing for, I don't know, 50 years or something like that. And I asked him like, well, what's he got? Is it chicken pox, mumps, measles? What is this? And he said, I have never in all my practice seen such a mild case. I don't know what it is. I can't tell you if it's chicken pox, mumps, measles. And in my new film, I'll describe they're the same thing, just different conditions expressed differently. And we said, well, what should we do? And he said, nothing. <laughs> he didn't even have a fever yet, just like a little raised temperature. He said, just, just go home. It's fine. So if your body is biochemically perfected, which is what my new film's about, I don't care if the German new medicine people are right and it's a trauma event. I don't even care if it's a virus or a bacteria. I don't care if it's an electric phenomenon, pheromone, bioresonant trigger. 
it doesn't matter. The, the, what matters is what are you going to do about it and how are you going to prevent from expressing in a dangerous way, right? And everyone's arguing over the cause, and it's like, well, my new film is about I don't care what causes it. You don't have to express it in the first place, or you can treat it within three days easily without dying from it. You know? um, but it does seem it does seem to be um, predictable, though. You put a bunch of kids together, and a few of them are going to get chickenpox, and and I think that's one of the arguments <clears throat> that gets used. Well, there's also um, nocebo and placebo, which if anyone looks into that, this is what the voodoo and the witch doctor people do, right? If I curse you, Germ, part of the curse is you have to know I cursed you. Like, I can make the voodoo doll, right? But if you don't know I made the voodoo doll, it doesn't work. I have to show you I'm, I got your voodoo doll, right? That psychs you out. And then when I tell you I'm doing this to you and this is going to happen, you make yourself sick. And there was a great one. There was a guy in India uh, when the British were under, uh, under control. He had done something. Um, I can't remember what he was stealing or doing, but he was supposed to be publicly hung. And, and then these British scientists said, no, um, we're going to do an experiment on him. So they tied him to a table and said, we're going to instead of hanging you, we're going to bloodlet you. Right. And it'll be painless. It won't be like a hanging and all that. OK, cool. So this is crazy. What they did, they tied him to this bed, but they had these tubes underneath the bed hooked up into a pan with water in them. Then they blindfolded him, and then the doctors around were in on it. So they they gave him artificial, like superficial paper cuts on his wrists and ankles. He thought they cut his wrists and ankles, but they were artificial cuts, not bleeding. Then, because he was blindfolded, the doctors were all saying, oh, my God, he's turning purple. He's this. They were talking like he was dying. He can hear his blood dripping in the pans, but it wasn't. It was water. They had a tap underneath. And the guy turned purple and had all of the, the symptoms of hypoxia, oxygen starvation, and died. And they didn't bloodlet him. You see what I mean? So this could also be happening. There could be a psychological trigger where you've been told, I'm sending you to a chicken pox party. You're going to get the chicken pox. And if your body needs to remove old dead fibrin and tissue, it, because children are in a growing stage. So your old young child tissue is dying. It gets hard. There's a fibrin disturbance. You don't have all your potassiums and oils and things to keep your body moist. So there could also be like a, a mental or a physical trigger saying, well, for you four, it's time to detox. And because you believe this, it, you'll do it. And for the other eight, maybe it's not. We don't know because they mm. won't study it because they've seen, you know what I mean? They've sold us mm. all on germ theory. So no studies get done about it. Uh, can the same line of thinking apply to animals? Like, for example, parvo is a big one in dogs. Yeah, very possibly. And like, I don't know, actually, but in fish, we know that pheromones are really big in fish. So, so some kind of chemical smell they give off and the other ones smell like fish trigger each other's biological um, cleanses and stages and all that. So, yeah, there could be. I, I don't study animals, so I, I can't tell you I don't know anything about it. But, yeah, it's, it's very possible. Like I said in the beginning, they used to think it was bacteria was the problem 
But there were several doctors, um, a guy called Dr. Waite in Canada, Dr. Frazier, uh, Dr. Thomas C. Powell in California, and a German one, Pettenkoffer. They ate, drank, injected, sprayed, everything you could do, millions of different alleged pathogenic germs from bubonic plague to cholera to streptococcus, you name it, everything. And none of them got sick. They even did it to their understudies and underlings. They were doing it in lectures. So bacteria by themselves, isolated, don't make you sick either. The problem is you find them in rotting, decaying, poisonous <laughs> things. Now, yeah, if you leave a potato salad out in the garden in the sun for two weeks, an anthrax bacteria turns up and you eat that, <laughs> you will die. But it isn't the anthrax bacteria there. They're there to eat the rotting potato salad and flesh. It's the poisonous byproduct. It's the rotting potato salad. But again, it's like saying, well, we always find firemen at the scene of a fire. Therefore, firemen must cause fires because they're always there, right? Or the rooster always crows when the sun comes up. Therefore, the rooster causes the sun to rise, you know? That's the mentality behind it. It's not the germs in the poison. It's the poisonous, rotten shit that the germs are there to eat that cause but the illness. They're coming from inside the cells in the organism. In other, well, here's a good way to put it. When, when you open your fridge, right, you have to throw some food out because it's moldy, right, and rotten. Is it old food or brand new food that's old and moldy? It's old food. Well, why aren't these magical flying bacteria wanting to eat the new healthy food? <laughs> why are they only attacking the old food? Don't they mm. want to eat the good new food? It's because they're not flying around in your fridge. They're coming from inside the old food to biodegrade it. That's what they do. They're, they're janitors. They, they're pleomorphic. The, sorry, sorry for interrupting, but that's the argument that Beichamp made. That's exactly what Beichamp saw and Gaston mm. Nessons too. The, they call it, some call it pleomorphism, some call it somatids. There's a few different names. So like what we call bacteria, fungus, mold, uh, you know, they start as these little spores like dust. The Bible says from dust you come and dust you return, right? And then when there's a job to do, when there's something that needs to be deteriorated, they magically, this is the weird thing that Beichamp and Nessans couldn't figure out. Why does this happen? These little spores suddenly turn into a bacteria single rod form, like a, like a jelly bean. Then they turn into a double rod form, like two jelly beans. Then they turn into a quadruple rod form. Then they turn into this form. Same, the same little dot turns into this. Then if that's not good enough to get rid of the, the, tissue or toxin it turns into a yeast and if that's not good enough it turns into another form and if that's not good enough it turns into a fungus form and then once it's done doing its job which is eating the you know like when you when you uh, you bury your grandma in a, a hermetically sealed coffin right the the coroner shuts the coffin it's airtight you bury her they dig her up in 10,000 years and there's a skeleton there well, where the hell did all the flesh go and all where did, where did the water and flesh go in a hermetically sealed coffin? Where is it? 
it's because the germs in her body, her bacteria, ate it all. That's what degraded it. That's why when they were making mummies in Egypt, they were keeping it liquefied and everything so that this didn't happen. However, they knew how to do this. I don't know. Embalming's like crazy. But so that's the job. The germs are, are janitorial. They come from inside the cell, inside the body, inside the dead piece of fruit. You know, when you've got a, a three oranges in your fridge or a bowl of strawberries, do you ever notice that the mold doesn't come from the top outside? It comes from the one down in the dark with no oxygen. You notice the one covered starts molding first. Have you ever noticed that people who eat grapes and stuff are like, oh, I can still eat these top five, but I got to throw out the bottom ones, you know, <laughs> because they don't have any light. They don't have any oxygen. They don't have any nutrients. So they start biodegrading inside out. And if the germs, you know, do those germs end up dying then um, because they've eaten away all the flesh? Well, that's the great thing. What Béchamp saw was um, after they do eat the flesh or whatever they're there to do, they return right back to the spore again. So Béchamp drew this chart as a circle. So from dust they come and dust they return. They go from this little tiny specks of dust into these bacteria, into these fungus, into these other things. And then they go right back to dust again, which is crazy. And he tried to kill them with radiation. He dehydrated them. He did everything. And as soon as he had some water again, later on, they came back. The radiation couldn't kill them. Now, this is where antibiotics come from because Robert Koch... You know, we get Koch's postulates, you've heard, right? Well, those aren't his postulates. He stole them from a doctor called Henley. So they're really Henley's postulates. Now, the microscopes were really shitty back in Koch's day. So he was trying to study bacteria on slides in these crappy old microscopes, somewhere between a magnifying glass and like what we can buy for a hundred bucks, you know, <laughs> at Kmart. <laughs> but he couldn't see the bacteria so he went to ig farben you know uh, this petrochemical companies bayer ig farben the, the petrochemical companies who are now the drug dealers of the world he they were making dyes they were making colored dyes for clothing and and other things so he got these blue dyes from ig farben and he found that if he dyed the slide with the bacteria, he could see them under the microscope. So he's like, oh, cool. But what, and then everyone followed his lead. But what they started to see was that the dye, the poisons in the dye they were using were poking holes in the bacteria and returning them to spore form prematurely. So normally, Béchamp saw that once the bacteria finished its job, whether it had to be a yeast or a mold or a fungus or whatever, it would go back to spore on its own. What Koch found was when you put the E.G. Farben's poisonous color dyes on the slide with the bacteria, it killed them, but it didn't. It just returned them to spore form, and then they will come back as a yeast form because they know there's a dye there that they can't handle as a bacteria. So they will come back bigger in a yeast form resistant to the dye poison. And if that kills them, they'll come back as a fungus form bigger, right? 
So this is why if you open up your antibiotics capsules, do you ever notice when you open up antibiotics, there's a bunch of pretty little balls in there that are neon pink, neon green, neon blue. Those are poisonous paintballs <laughs> from IG Farben. They're poisonous paintballs that are so poisonous they kill bacteria back to spore form. That's why there's colored balls in your antibiotics. And then you ever notice the hospitals go, we've got a super resistant super bug that's antibiotic resistant, right? And you're like, do you, Germ, do you have a super bug in your house? I no. don't think so. You know what I mean? Why are hospitals the only place where there are antibiotic resistant superbugs? Because hospitals are where they're giving out antibiotics like candy to everyone, <laughs> killing the bacteria. So the bacteria know I've still got to eat this sick tissue in this person. So I'm going to come back as a yeast form, which is resistant to the poisonous antibiotics. And they go, oh, we've got a yeast problem in this hospital. Like, you made the yeast problem because you gave antibiotics to everyone who had single and double rod form bacteria, killed those bacteria back to spore. And as Besham saw, they come back as yeast. And if you kill them with even more bigger antibiotics, they'll come back as fungus. And now your hospital is going to have a super fungal bug problem. Their drugs are creating the problem. They're, there's not yeast flying around the world trying to kill everything. <laughs> like, How do you respond then to somebody like Steve Kirsch who put out a, a blog post or a substack a few months ago where he said, well, they say SARS-CoV-2 doesn't exist. Yes, a photograph of it. Well, I, I don't know if you had time to read it. I sent you my uh, response to, to Peter McCullough today. I don't know if you read it. Um, and again, I'm not attacking Peter McCullough or Steve Kirsch. Like, I, this is not me character assessing, right? As I said to Peter McCullough, I said, if you want proof that a nose can grow out of your right cheek, go look at a Picasso painting and you'll see a nose <laughs> growing out of her right cheek, right? A picture of is not of art, an art enhanced picture is not proof of anything. What they have is a picture of a particle in a Petri dish broken off from a cell that has been poisoned with amphotericin, genomycin, phenol red, trypsin, broken down chemically. Then, it, like I told you, has been stained, bombarded, cut, right? They've done nutrient starved. They have a picture of a particle a non-moving picture of a particle. Now, that, and they go, that's a virus. And you're like, no, that's not a virus. That's a picture of a particle <laughs> that has been majorly messed with. And if I showed you a picture, a still picture of a guy coming home and he's got a key taking it out of his pocket at his front door. And I said to you, Germ, is that guy coming out of his door and he just locked the door and is putting the key in his pocket? Or is he coming home and unlocking the door from a still picture with him just with a key in his pocket? You can't tell me because you don't have the full story, right? You couldn't tell me. You're like, it could be either. That's what they're doing. They have a still picture of a dead particle outside of a broken down cell. And they're saying the virus broke that cell down. And that's why we see it now. And we're saying the procedure you used also broke down that cell. And that's why you can only see it now. 
you see so just because you have a picture of a dead particle in a petri dish under an electron microscope that's been beaten to shit doesn't mean it's a virus and as dr tom cowan has showed they found those in kidney cells back in the 1970s identical particles with what they call sars-cov-2 from kidney biopsies of people with kidney and liver cancer back in the 70s before there was any alleged such thing identical they can't tell them apart so you, you don't have a picture of a virus you have a picture of a particle that you claim is a virus there's a big difference you know what i mean and and they're not seeing that and what was the other part of the question which is important um, the genome sequencing right so yeah okay yes there's a big difference between sequencing and assembling. So in order, they, well, genomes, this will get us into the genomes, but like they claim that this particle that they see is a thing called a virus and that it has a genome of 30,000 roughly nucleotides. So that's your ACGT or ACUT, right? Uh, 30,000 nucleotides long. That's what they claim this particle has. They don't know that because they've never, even after their Petri dish experiment, they've never taken that particle out by itself, like taking your socks out of the washing machine. They've never taken just that particle out of the Petri dish and then run a real Sanger or Maxim Gilbert real sequencing, which is doable. We've had the technology for 70 years and then said, right, there is the real genome of that particle. They've never done that ever, ever in the history of the world that they won't do it. Just like if we took your socks out, we could look at them and go, yeah, that's a sock. That's not a dress, right? They haven't done that. So what they do is they take the whole Petri dish after they've broken it down with these chemicals and starved it. So here's an analogy. Let's say we put all your let's say your socks are black and your shirt's black and your wife's dress is black and her underwear. We put 50 pieces of clothes that are all black in the washer. Then we take them out and then we run a, a chainsaw over them and cut them into 5 million pieces or 50 million pieces. Right. And then we go, all right, germ, there they are. Make us make a sock out of that. <laughs> and you just got 50 million pieces of black material, cotton, and you put them together and they look like a sock, right? And you're like, there it is, Steve. I found a sock in all this. That's what they're doing. They're taking all the genetic material in the Petri dish from A, your boogers and your snot, which have your lung material DNA in there. They have bacterial DNA. They have bugs you swallowed. They have food you went down the wrong pipe. There's a lot, ton. Then they have then they put it in a monkey kidney, which has another 20 million genetic material. Every genetic sequence is made out of four nucleotides, A, C, G, T. There's four things make up everything. So you, you know what I'm saying? It's the sequence they're in, they claim, that makes the difference. In other words, a mouse is alleged to have a 97.5% genetic match to a human being. That's what they say. Our, our, our human genome is 97.5% the same as a mouse. Well, do you go to jail for murder 
for setting up mouse traps in the basement. Didn't you just kill a human variant? <laughs> right? And when they do these genetic sequences, they go, that has an 80% match to the SARS. And you say, yeah, but if the mouse is 97.5% identical to a human, 80% is nothing. And you made it up anyway, right? So anyway, so they take the 50 million strands of broken down. Now the bovine calf serum that they use, which is the blood from the, the, the aborted fetal cow, that has its DNA. In the old days, they were using milk, which has its own DNA and RNA, right? So now you've got all this DNA and RNA from all these sources blended up with a chainsaw, and then they piece them together. They don't, they assemble them. They don't sequence them, they assemble them, and they assemble them to look like the last one they assembled the same way. So they go, oh, well, they took the template for SARS-1, which they made up the same way, taking a bat SARS from before, which they made up. And they go, well, we can actually put all these, you know, 50 million strands together and it looks close to SARS-1, but the computer couldn't exactly do it. <laughs> so then they go, oh, it's SARS-2. And then they do it again and they go, oh, it's a Omicron. And, you know, this is what they're doing. They're, they're building genomes. They aren't finding genomes. You see what I'm saying? How does that then uh, link to genomics? Well, this is the great thing, because as Dr. Stefan Lanka was recently talking about, and many were there, back in 2006, and um, uh, might have been San Diego, I think Southern California, so all the world's top geneticists got together, and this was part of the, the beginning of the Human Genome Project, they got together to have this big conference because in the point of the conference was <laughs> to find out what is a genome. <laughs> no, you're the top scientist in your genetic genome field and you're having a conference in 2006 to find out, to agree on what a genome is. And genomics have been around since like the 60s or 70s, you know. And they were having, apparently they were like having fistfights almost, like the, the disagreements were massive. But the understanding they came to from all their research is that a genome isn't static and set. It's changing constantly with the environment, the light. There are many factors. In other words, the genome you have right now is now different. Now it's different. Now it's different, right? And from when you were born, it's different. And it's the same. You can't have a virus that has an exact 30,000 genome every time because it would be changing too as well, right? So they're using PCR tests, which is like I liken it to a PCR test can look for little strands of sequences, 18 to 300 nucleotides long. So in other words... If it was food, a PCR test could look for salt, pepper, and oregano. Now, how many dishes have salt, pepper, and oregano? You know, your omelet could have it. A burger could have it. A, you know, like, like a million. And what they're doing is they're, they're taking your burger and going, oh, my God, we found salt and pepper in it. Therefore, it's an omelet. Or, you know, we found sugar in there. Therefore, it's this. And you're like, yeah, but. You need to look for the whole burger. You can't find a, a common thing that's in everything and claim it's it's something else. That PCR can't do that. 
So they're using a bogus test because they made the genome in the first place in the computer. So now they can rig the PCR test to look for any little 18 or 300 sequence out of any sequence they want in the one they made. You know what I'm saying? Carrie like, Mullis said that also. Well, he, I mean, the thing is, like, we we all think he's a big hero. The, the PCR in itself, I won't even go there, has massive problems itself. It, it Just the way it works, it, it that could just be totally fraudulent, too. I, that, that'd be a whole other show on that. We're not even totally certain that the PCR science or test itself is even valid at finding what they say it is. You know, but either way, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Here's a good one. I tell people like, um, hang on, let me grab something. here. OK, this is a good one. Hopefully you can't see this and you can all play along at home. Here's our game, right? I'm holding something in my hand right now. You don't know anything. You can't see it. You don't know what it is, what size. Now, I want you to come up with a test to tell me if what's on your desk in front of you right now is the same as what's in my hand. Right? Do you have any questions? <laughs> I have no idea where to begin. <laughs> where would you begin? You couldn't. You couldn't possibly, right? You, you'd want to know, like, how big is it? What's it made of? What color? You know, you'd have like, what, a million questions, right? So there's no way you could make a test to detect what's in my hand unless you have what's in my hand first, right? Mm. And that's what they do with these viruses. Christian Drosten didn't have a COVID virus or any such thing. So he took an old SARS template, took lung cancer from people with A549 alveolar cells, and some known titer stock from another thing, put them together and said, that's the test for this. And if this matches that, even though it's not COVID, it's COVID. Well, I'm holding like a little piece of chewing gum pack, you know, with like two pieces left in there. You cannot make a test for something you don't have and haven't diagnosed to see if you're testing for the same thing. It's impossible. Yet that's what they do. The pushback saying, oh, you, you're misunderstanding the science. I, I don't actually even get involved with those people because I'm saying you misunderstand logic. <laughs> if you think science is that you can make a test for what's in my hand when you don't know what's in my hand, I wouldn't worry about what I misunderstand. I'd worry about what you misunderstand because no sane person in the world would think that they could make a test for this without having it first. Mm. And those are the exact people who tell me I don't understand science. Well, sorry, <laughs> you don't understand science or logic. What causes illness? Well, yeah, many things. Um, quite a lot of it's local uh, toxins, environmental shared toxins. Quite a lot of it is stress, actually. Uh, stress, um, worry, fear. These turn your body acidic, uh, which is no good, cause putrefaction. Um, Quite a lot of it is shared dietary mineral deficiency. This is another one. We're always told, um, oh, I'm prone to cancer or heart attacks because my family, right? It, we've all heard like it runs in my family, the genes. Uh, I have a genetic disposition to that. No, you don't. 
you learned your eating habits and the way you deal with people and all your stress factors from these people who learn it from their parents who learn from that. Your family passed down shitty eating habits and don't know how to communicate with each other and you behave the same way. And so you stress the same way, you have the same bad diet, you know. There's a lot of other factors. It's not genetically disposed. There's there's so many factors. And that's the great question is everyone's like, what causes disease? And and you and you're saying it's not what. There's a lot of it's personalized to every person. Um, what might cause you to become ill might not cause me. This is interesting when you get into German new medicine. They claim that it's all some kind of emotional conflict or a real trauma, like physical or emotional. But you say, well, they say, oh, well, the kid goes to school and he's been separated from his parents and he's freaking out and doesn't like to be there. And now he breaks out uh, with a healing chicken pox rash or whatever. And you say, that's all cool and good, but how come the other kid went to school, had the same terrible experience, hated it just as much, had the same separation? Why didn't he break out with chicken pox, right? Not saying that it didn't cause it, but I'm, I'm saying there are multiple factors at play. Why do you get cancer and I don't, you know what I mean? There's so many factors you could never mm. possibly. Well, look at the vaccination schedule for starters. Mm. You know, that at now at two, when I'm, I'm 51, when I was a kid, I think we had about four, maybe three vaccines by age three. I think, I don't know what they, I think they're getting like 30 now in America. So that's a boatload of poison to be putting in a kid. So anything a two-year-old gets now, I would immediately start looking to vaccines personally. But, you know, there could be other things. Maybe they weren't breastfed, so they're not getting all the potassium chloride, all the different potassiums and mother's milk nutrients. Um, so it could be a, a mineral deficiency, you know. Um, maybe the mom's working because moms don't get to stay at home anymore, right? So, you know, they used to stay home for two years and have the kid. Now they got two weeks in America, six weeks in Denmark. And then you're at grandma's, you know, and this baby's like, who the fuck is grandma? I don't know. <laughs> so there could be a separation conflict. Do you see what I mean? There could be so many things that this is really an impossible question to answer. However, it's the correct question, Germ, because they're not studying this because they're just blaming germs and viruses for everything. There are no studies. Where are the studies? trying to figure this out right you could easily control this experiment i suppose then that this conversation actually is very important i think you're at the crux of the matter like i think you're dead on the money this is the only conversation we should be having but before we can have this conversation we need to agree that germs don't cause disease and viruses don't exist outside of a po chemically manufactured in a petri dish for an electron microscope slide that's why i'm on that team is saying once we get rid of that bullshit, now we can have the really important questions and that's where our funding should go now of course that's not going to happen because big pharma they pour like billions into research and development for a product you know as you know so they have to make a profit back of course like they're not going to like put billions into a product and then go oh my god there is no virus so we you know, <laughs> they have to make their money back so they're not going to they're not going to admit this 
they're not going to fund research. They're all about profit. Mm. You know, and that's the problem is that the germ theory puts the blame on everyone else and not you for eating shitty, living a bad lifestyle, stressing on your life. Oh, it's not my fault that, uh, you know, I've been eating candy all since October to January. <laughs> Come on. In a, in a conversation like this, Steve, is language also pretty important? Let me give you an example. Um, mm. If I said HIV doesn't cause AIDS, it's correct, but perhaps sloppy. Yeah, well, well, it, well, yeah, exactly. Because I could HIV. say because because the answer is HIV doesn't exist. So, in the same way, I could say fire-breathing fairies don't cause tornadoes. Well, that is correct. That's right, they, yeah, they don't that do that. Mean, exactly, and that doesn't mean that tornadoes aren't real. That mm. means exactly, Germ. Yeah, that statement is brilliant. Fire-breathing fairies don't cause tornadoes, and you're and you're like, uh, well, then that means there's no such thing as tornadoes. You're like, no, tornadoes are real, but there's no such thing as fire-breathing fairies. That's the same we have with AIDS. AIDS is real, but HIV didn't cause it. It was the AZT and all of the mustard gas chemotherapy drugs they were giving people who took a bullshit PCR test that can't detect any such virus as HIV because it doesn't exist and can only detect three little nucleotide strands that are found in everything, convinced them they had HIV, and then they started taking the mustard gas and chemotherapy AZT, and that's the AIDS. They took AZT off the market back in the 1960s, I think, late 60s or 70s, because it was destroying bone marrow and killing people. <laughs> you know, so they got rid of this product for 20 years. And then they're like, oh, it's the it's the treatment for HIV. And it started killing people. The AIDS was poisoning because the HIV was the magic fire breathing fairies, as you're saying. AIDS is real. A AZT is what killed Freddie Mercury. Yeah, it was the drugs they gave him, yeah. He didn't mm -hmm. have HIV because there isn't no such thing. He was partying a lot, doing poppers. His kidneys and liver were screwed. Mm. He was probably really sick. He went to a doctor. AIDS was all the rage. The doctor gave him a PCR test that can't detect any such thing as AIDS because it can't. There's no such thing. He believed he had HIV, and the doctor, he probably had the best doctor of his. Why is Magic Johnson still walking around? I don't know if you guys know him. Do you remember the mm. Basque, you know, Magic Johnson? Mm. The, mm, I remember that I big story. In, yeah, I grew up in America. So aside from Liberace and Rock Hudson, the, the big one we knew was showing my age here. Uh, Magic Johnson had HIV. We were like, oh, my God, Magic Johnson's going to die. He's the greatest Basque because Michael Jordan wasn't around yet. He's the greatest basketball. He's still walking around today smiling, doing TV shows. You're like, what? I thought you had AIDS, dude. And, and what a lot of people don't remember was, so the first thing they need to do, the first thing is they need to convince you that you have the virus or the disease, the sickness, right? So they did like the Red Cross and um, all these do-gooders in the, in the 80s and 90s, they were coming through these African, Uganda, all these countries, passing out smallpox vaccines. And they were spiked with cancer cells from sheep and, and um, cows. Now, that doesn't kill you, but it does make you sick. That's poisonous. <laughs> the cancer cells are rotting 
flesh and they're foreign flesh. So that's your body knows self and a cow and a sheep. And if you got cow cells in your body's like, I don't shouldn't have cow cells. So they did get sick from that, but not enough to kill them unless they had anaphylactic reaction. Then they passed out all the tests for free. They're like, yeah, take an AIDS test, take an AIDS test. You're like, well, who financed? How much did that cost to make like 95 million AIDS tests for Africans? Who, that can't be cheap. So, so Nobody paid for them. You're like, who the fuck made all those AIDS tests and passed them out all over Africa for free? Then everyone who tested positive, then they said, well, we've got your medicine. First it was AZT. Now it's like you're talking about just AVRs, antivirals. But they're still the same thing. You're talking about a poisoning event. So that was what killed. But then what the World Bank did, and, and a lot of the governments who financed this, they told all these African governments, we'll give you the medicine, but you owe us your, you got to pay for it in the back end. And you got to pay for it with your resources, which is what's going on now. People, are, how come the World Bank took over like 20 African countries after AIDS? Do you see what I mean? Because they owed them for all the medicine, which really killed them anyway. It was like, the, they charged you to kill yourself. This is so disgusting. I'm, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but when you really look at how absurd mm. this stuff is, and you're in the thick of it, so you know what I'm talking about. If you go to my BitChute channel or Odyssey Space Busters, I did the voiceovers. Uh, Dr. Stefan Lanka did two presentations in German. So my friends, uh, Tracy Northern and John Blade did the translations. I did an English voiceover. Um, Stefan goes into detail on this. So look for Stefan Lanka, the new biology, part one and two, and watch those. He goes into a lot of detail about what happened at that conference. And there's a great one. Um, she was there, Dr. May, May Wong. I, I think it's Wong, W-O-N-G. Um, she's got some great videos talking about this too. So, you know, the problem is they didn't tell us because at the same time, they were getting into what they're calling epigenetics. They were getting into new fields of genetics and the research money was pouring in the, you know, like when you've got a hot new science, the grants just start rolling in. So to their horror, like they're like, shit, man, this is all BS. But the, at the same time, the gravy train just started rolling. So I think the reason they didn't tell us is obvious because the gravy train was rolling. You know what I mean? So they're like, oh, we'll just shut up about it but this is terrible how many people think they're somebody's father from a pcr test how many criminals got into jail or put into jail for a bullshit pcr <laughs> you know the how how many people think they're two-thirds scottish two-thirds you know like the ramifications of this just goes longer and longer and longer out what so are what are the ramifications Great question. What do you think? I, I don't know. Like, well, for starters, like I'm talking about now with deep metagenomic sequencing, the ramifications are they can tell you diarrhea is a virus or a cold is a virus and force you to take a, a vaccine for it when the only proof it's a virus is there is no proof it's a virus. They just took a guy with diarrhea and made a virus sequence and then made a PCR test that agrees with that by taking a little bit, even though that same PCR test would test positive if you stuck it up a squirrel's nose. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that, th th These are very far-reaching ramifications. 
because they don't even have to prove there's a virus anymore. They just got to prove that the same genetic sequence found in everything is the proof that there is a virus. So th this is what's dangerous about all this. And sometimes environmental factors are just so blatantly obvious. You don't even have to know much about science to see that flu, for example, coincides with seasonal changes between the northern and southern hemispheres. And if you live closer to the equator, Steve, that the likelihood of getting flu is even lower because the seasonal change is not that drastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Atmospheric change. Yeah, people in warm weather don't get it. Or what? You, you can still get the flu in the, in the summer or the warm period, but you got to be pretty damn toxic to have a flu detox then. Yeah, you're totally right. And why don't like, you know, people who work in offices with all these people, how come like 10 of you get the flu and the other 40 are just walking around fine and never get it? You know what I mean? Like you're using the same water cooler, same bathroom, sitting in cubicles right next why didn't all of you get the flu? I've, I've heard uh, the argument that, well, exposure doesn't equal infection. Did they explain why? No. <laughs> I've heard the argument that jumping out of a plane without a parachute doesn't equal death. <laughs> <laughs> But if you can't explain how that is, then, you know, it's it's just a statement. Yeah. Well, well because, Steve, you've heard it because uh, you have um, uh, an immune system. Yeah, that's a good one. But you don't because to have an immune system assumes there's something to be immune from. That's a germ theory term. There has to be viruses or pathogenic bacteria to be immune from. You do have white blood cells, leukocytes, and um, you do have things in your body that can clean up toxins, bacteria, fungus, mold, blood cells. So if you want to, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> this could be what you're talking about, semantics. You, you can have what you might call an immune system, but there's nothing to be immune from. And here's a good one. Um, alcoholics. You know, you and I like our drink. We're having a little scotch and a little beer right now, right? So we, we know that uh, a vodka is fermented, potatoes or grapes, whatever you're going to do to right. But it's not the it's not the bacteria in the vodka that get you drunk and sick. It's their fermentate, their byproduct, their waste product, right? It's the vodka, even though it was made by bacterial fermentation. The vodka makes you sick. Now, an alcoholic who starts slowly and is, can get up to a bottle of vodka a day, sometimes two for a real bad one, right? And they don't die from two bottles of vodka. However, a person who doesn't drink vodka could, could go out and have two bottles of vodka and they need their stomach pumped and, or they'll die, right? So it's not that the, the alcoholic is immune from vodka poisoning. It's that they have enzymes, they have special enzymes that their body has built up because their body is expecting, all right, this guy's going to throw two liters of vodka down us today. 
So it makes an enzyme that can start dissolving the toxins and all that, right? Whereas the new guy is just out for his birthday and, hey, have another shot, have another shot. You know, he doesn't have those enzymes. They take like two months to build up. And an alcoholic will tell you this, the most deaths you get for alcoholics are somebody who went to AA or a recovering alcoholic and they made it two or three or four or five months without drinking and then they had a relapse binge and they tried to drink again what they used to drink every night. Those are the ones who die because the body's like, okay, there's no longer coming this and they don't have the enzymes to deal with it. So that's what's going on. You don't have, you're not, even an alcoholic is not immune from vodka. They just have the, the enough enzymes to deal with the amount of vodka, but it still poisons them. You don't drink like two bottles of vodka and you're not poisoned. You're totally poisoned. You is, see there what a link, I mean? is there a link between that, for example, and I don't know, not washing your hands when you go to the bathroom? Well, that's a joke. Like the most sterile thing you can do is, is pee. Urine is the most sterile thing there is. Like if you got bit by a jellyfish or something, you'd piss on it. So I, if you're taking a poo, if you're taking a pee, right? Like a man, oh, you didn't wash your hands. You're like, even if I peed on my hands, Mm. There is nothing more sterile than urine. It's pure plasma with antidotes. If a cobra bites you, what you would immediately do within two minutes, your urine would start making the anti, would start making the, you know, the, the not the antidote, I don't want to call it, but the enzyme. So the first thing you do is drink your own piss if a cobra just bit you because the enzyme would already start coming out. So why are you washing your hands if you just peed on the bathroom? It's like completely sterile. If you took a dump, now you're talking because that's toxins and all that. Like, same reason you wash your hands if you work at a chemical plant. Well, you, the reason you wash your hands is you don't want like chemicals burning into your skin. <laughs> you know, they will go through your skin. A lot of people's illness comes from um, shower gels, shampoos, makeup, uh, you know, household chemicals that they're putting on their skin, body, um, the, the stuff you put in your dishwasher, the, the blue stuff that makes the glasses shiny. Well, look on the back of that. It says, don't drink this. You know what I mean? So there's so many toxins in our house. But where you turn the product around, and there's a big orange thing with a skeleton. <laughs> You're like, well, why am I putting that in my dishwasher to make my glasses and plates and forks shiny? when I'm going to eat, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I think there's a lot of household toxins. Um, same with arsenic, you know, back in the Victorian times, uh, arsenic's very poisonous and they were using it for the green wallpaper, which was very popular in the Victorian times. Um, people were actually dying in the arsenic, uh, the wallpaper plants from like the wa the arsenic. In fact, uh, the French accused the British of killing Napoleon, Napoleon um, by putting green wallpaper in his cell. <laughs> they said it was, they put the arsenic in there on purpose, right? So, and they used to put it out in the gardens for the bugs where the kids were playing. They were putting in the kitchen. Like these people were putting arsenic everywhere back then. And you have to say, well, that's massive poison. So all of these outbreaks, we're told, these pandemics, are they pandemics? Even the medicine, as I put in my new film, the medicine even up to 1890, actually until 1970, actually, 40 in most places, but even in Japan, 1970, medicine was arsenic. This is crazy. <laughs> you know?
you're on a battlefield and you're looking out at the horizon this is the information battle and you're looking out at the horizon what do you see i was one of those weird people who woke up around like 2007 eight you know back then there was only david ike um william cooper there was about like six people you know uh not a lot. Alan Watts. There, there was just like a few people talking about this and I sounded like a crazy bastard. And I'm like, they're going to microchip you. They're going to take away your cash. Digital this, da, 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 da. they're going to release, you know, <laughs> like it sounded like a nutter. And then as time went by, I was like, okay, it's all happening. And then I started seeing everyone waking up and I'm like, Oh my God, like I don't sound crazy anymore. But like you said, then the COVID scam hit and yeah, I'm the only guy on a train not wearing a mask. The only guy in the supermarket, you know, just like you're saying. And I thought, oh my God, we're fucked. I thought everyone was waking up and you're all just dumb as shit. But I couldn't tell, is it where I'm at? You know, I'm in Denmark. I just was like, is it just here or is it everywhere? That said, I do not believe the statistics were given. I do not believe when they go, oh, uh, 68% of the world already took a COVID vaccine or Australia or America. I, I no, 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 they didn't. No, they didn't. They're, they're lying about their statistics because they use group think, you know, to, to brainwash you. So I, I don't think it's as bad as we think it is. What do you think? Well, I live on the African continent. And one thing I do know is that the, injection uptake was very low yeah i think i think the lowest there mm. i was actually quite surprised how high it was in israel it was one of the highest in the world according to them and you know you've got all these people i don't know where you stand on this and i'm not starting this conversation or anything all oh, the jews this the jews that i'm like well i Funny enough, it looks like the Jews got five boosters within four months. I'm not sure they're in charge of the world because they jabbed the shit out of the Jews, man. Looks to me like the final solution's on the way, but I, that's none of my business, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I would just think if it was a conspiracy that I was in charge of, I wouldn't give it to any of my people, you know. But... <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> All right, well, Steve, let's let's quickly use that as the segue into where can I follow your work. <laughs> you can find me at Auschwitz.com. <laughs> Dachau. No. Uh, I'm, we're only kidding. Um, Space Busters, you've probably heard us. We are our, our biggest platform is BitChute. Space Busters at BitChute. We're on Odyssey. I think we're on Rumble, but nobody likes us there. Um, we have, if you want to reach out to me, spacebusters at hotmail.com and um, truthserumnews.com. That's where I write my articles. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Huge too. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, Bit, BitChute. If you want to watch our stuff, BitChute in Odyssey. I think that's totally cool. Steve Falconer, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you, Germ. It's awesome, man. Let's do it again another time, man. I'd love to. My name is Germ. This is Germ Wolfe, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.